0: Good morning. So as a pastor, I have the great privilege of performing a lot of weddings over these many years that I've pastored at this church. And uh, this past summer, uh, last July, in fact, um, Josh Wang, who's sitting in the sound booth this morning, and his wife Lucy uh, were wed, a beautiful couple. Their wedding was amazingly fun and creative and went off uh, almost without a hitch. And so uh, I don't want to share about their wedding because that, their wedding, this is a beautiful couple, things went great. But I want to share about what's wrong with their officiant because about five minutes before the ceremony started. Decided I I need to use the restroom, it's good for me to prepare myself and just kind of get that out of the way so I don't have any distractions. Five minutes before the ceremony starts, went to the restroom, and then this happened. Can you pull up the next slide? Now, if you can't see what I'm holding, as I was using the bathroom, I pulled up my zipper a little bit too hard. (laughs) In my enthusiasm, the brand-new pants of a brand-new suit took the zipper clean off. And I stood, this is my worst nightmare as a pastor, as a fish, five minutes before the ceremony. There's no way to fix it. If you don't know what pants and zipper are, you, there's no way to fix that. There's no one else at fault. I'm, it's not like I can look around and blame someone and yell at someone. So I'm in a panic. What am I going to do? And so after kind of praying to the Lord, kind of stewing about it for a minute, just kind of cover myself and then Walked out of the room, tried not to say hi to anybody, not make eye contact, uh, cover myself. Unfortunately, I, fortunately, I had brought my Bible with me, so I was walking around with my Bible in front of me, found Jenny, who was the wedding coordinator for the, that wedding that morning, and I, I told her that afternoon, excuse me, I need as many safety pins as you possibly have at this moment, and just safety pin that sucker up. Uh, and so if there was a reflection during some of the photos for those who attend, I apologize. I wonder if something like that has ever happened to you in life where you are suffering the fallout of your own mistakes. That there's no way to fix it. It's nobody else's fault. There's no one else to blame. You did it to yourself. And I want to propose to you that spiritually, that's what happens to us with sin. That as we rebel and turn away from God, we invite consequences into our life about what life looks like outside of God's goodness, his protection, what that's really like, till we're caught in the jaws of despair or devastation and isolation. And there's no one else to blame. We did it to ourselves. And so the question this morning is, even in that place, is there still hope for us? And if so, how are we to uh, approach God to receive hope in that broken place of consequence. And so if you have a Bible this morning, turn in it to Daniel chapter 9. We're in Daniel chapter 9. We're in this series called Between Two Worlds. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs uh, around you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours. Take that home. That's why we buy them, to give away to visitors. Otherwise, the, the passage is going to be up on the big screen. But we're in this series called Between Two Worlds where we're learning about how to live for Jesus while living in the culture of Babylon. And so God's people during this point of history had turned away from God towards idolatry and immorality. And so God warned them again and again and again, if that is what you want, that is what you will get. And so they end up conquered by the Babylonian Empire who takes their sons to serve a pagan king and culture, a culture of idolatry and immorality. But here we are, 70 years later, in chapter 5, the Persian Empire comes and conquers Babylon, just as God had prophesied 150 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. But it didn't mean that things were smooth sailing from then on. In fact, now we're in this weird section where we're no longer talking about historical events and facts and stories that happened to Daniel. In chapters 7 through 12, Daniel, God is, receiving, uh, God is giving Daniel visions about the future. And what he sees, what God shows him, is that there will be successive empires post-Babylon that uh, aren't coming to bless you and deliver you, but to oppress you and devour you. Different kingdoms, same spirit of Babylon. And so in Daniel's mind, the question is, is there any reprieve from our sin and situation, the suffering that we've received as God's people? But the good news is that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel that he constantly turns to the Lord in prayer. Whenever he's in the midst of troubles, like in chapter 2, he turns to God in prayer. In fact, even when it violated pagan laws, we saw in chapter 6, that he ends up thrown in in a lion's den because he continuously prays to the Lord. And what's interesting about this passage is because we've seen him do it so many times, today we get a glimpse, an in-depth glimpse into his prayer life and how he seeks God's mercy even when God's people have brought suffering upon themselves. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's the people of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to uh, the word of the Lord in Jer- uh, to, to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, Seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Let's stop right there for a moment. So what's happening here in verses 1 and 2, we are turning the clock back to 539 B.C. This is the first year of the reign of Darius as governor over Babylon after the Medo-Persian Empire have conquered them, as, just as prophesied by the Lord. And in verse 2, what's happening is that Daniel is diligently reading scriptures. He's particularly reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. And and we know uh, specifically Jeremiah 25 and 29. In fact, let me read for you Jeremiah uh, 29, verse 10 through 14. You are semi-familiar with this passage. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. He's talking about from exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I, the Lord, have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so he's reading these promises. He's understanding that after 70 years of the desolation of Jerusalem, the captivity of the Jewish people, that God would forgive and restore his people if they will call upon him and turn back towards him. And so what he sees happening here is Prophecy and history meeting together and unfolding. That with the defeat of the Babylonian Empire, Daniel is checking his calendar and realizes time is almost up. It's almost 70 years. And so in verse 3, he's deeply moved by these prophecies in Jeremiah to turn towards the Lord, to come and pray and turn to him in hopefulness for mercy that's promised in God's word but also praying in mourning, in sackcloth, in ashes, over the sins of God's people, because in prayer, there's always both mourning and hope. You see, there's times that you and I are going to feel like it's too late, that we're already suffering the consequences of our sin and our rebellion against God, that your life is like a car wreck, that you've already wrapped it around this metaphorical telephone pole, and there's no one else to blame. You did it to yourself. And so we end up being crippled spiritually, limping away in life, limping away from Jesus. But the main point of this whole passage this morning is that when we are suffering the consequences of sin, that we can come and pray for God's mercy, rooted in God's promises, just as, just as Daniel did. You see, Daniel's not praying hopelessly or defensively like, well, you know, that's not fair and and we didn't really do this and, and I'm a victim in this circumstance. It's not hopelessly or defensively. He's praying confidently in God's character, that God is just and merciful and kind. And he's praying confidently in God's word. And I want you to catch this because this is what you and I can do. He is praying back to God these promises of God. He's praying them back to God trusting that he will keep his word. I think about it this way, as a parent, your children, they will never let go of the promises you make, they don't forget the promises that you make, even if you just kind of made an off-handed remark that you really didn't mean or didn't make as a promise. And so uh, many of you know my two boys, they share a room, four years old, 10 years old. And our little guy, Chili, he's, he's outgrown his bed. And so my wife and I, we have discussions about what we're gonna do, and you know, Uh, I was having just very offhanded remark to my little guy. He's four years old, and I I said, like, yeah, Mommy and I are thinking about maybe getting you a bunk bed, you know, for their space, but for our sanity as well. Now, like I said, Chili is how old? Four. And he forgets things all the time. He forgets a lot of things. Even this morning, some of you heard me before the service kind of harping on him. Where is your jacket? Where is your water bottle? You came with only two things, one for each hand, and now they've disappeared completely. He forgets things all the time but he will never forget like anything that he considers a promise from his dad. So this is what it's been like every week. When's the bed coming? You know, he'll ask, you, is it coming tomorrow? Is it coming next week? When? And I want to tell you that there are times that parents will make casual statements that they do not mean. But God never does. He means everything that he's ever said. He wants us to find every promise that he has made, to claim those for our own, especially for his undeserved goodness and grace, even when we are suffering over sin. So what does that look like, to come to God in prayer, trusting his promises and praying through his promises? Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I want you to see what Daniel does as he approaches the Lord. What he doesn't do is he doesn't start with his list of desires and demands. I don't know about you, but oftentimes we come to God as if it's Santa with our list of, please do this, please do that. But he doesn't start with a list of desires and demands because God isn't Santa. He's not a vending machine that we put our prayer coins into and then out comes the desired outcome. He is almighty God whom we have reverence for. He is an intimate father that we have relationship with. He's not our wish machine. So instead, we see in verse 4, and I want you to catch this, that the first thing he starts with is what we would call adoration. You are a great and awesome God. You keep your promises. You keep your love for us. He starts with praise, appreciating God for who he is and what God has done. You see, a relationship with anyone, with your family member with your coworker is more than just handing somebody a, a to-do list. It requires conversation and connection and appreciation of that, them as a person. And so prayer is simply a conversation with God, and it starts with appreciating Him as our good Father. Now, in verses 5 and 6, we get to the meat of the prayer as Daniel is confessing Though, God, you've spoken your wisdom and your ways to your people through the prophets, we continue to turn aside from your commandments. And so the second prayer principle we see here is confession, honestly admitting to God how we turn away from him and his word. And I love here, you see that Daniel is brutally honest. In verses 7 and 8, he says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To us whether God's people in the past or the present, whether in Jerusalem or in exile, belongs open shame. Now, when he says this, it's not meant in that. We read it, we hear it through kind of 21st century years. It's not meant in a toxic way or a demeaning way. Literally, the word meant there in in the original language, this idea of open shame means that it's literally literally translated uh, in our face or exposed, nowhere to hide that all of us have sinned against God. And sometimes we come before the Lord and we say, well, there's some people who are obvious sinners, but I don't think I'm that bad. Cornell University, they conducted this experiment a while back, asking people to predict their own moral choices and other people's moral choices on a variety of tasks, okay? So one of the tasks was, like, uh, predicting your choices, your morality, and other people's morality about how much money would you donate to a worthy charity like American Cancer Society. Or uh, one of their other moral choices was, if we assigned, uh, would you assign a more difficult task to yourself or to a 10-year-old girl? And uh, it's interesting because the result published in the Journal of... um, of uh, social psychology and personality, uh, the result was that we were, people were accurately able to assess other people, but grossly overestimated their own morality, that there was consistently a holier-than-thou uh, attitude about our own self-sacrifice, yet ending up choosing self-interest. And Jesus would describe that tendency in Matthew chapter 7 as this tendency to see the speck in other people's eyes without noticing the log in your own, being blind to your own sinfulness. Because we don't seem to understand sometimes that the, line, the dividing line between people who are sinless and people who are sinful, Jesus is on one side, and the rest of us, humanity, is on the other side. And so the question we want to land on here is, are you honest with God and with yourself? And what that looks like is, adoration simply recognizes who God is. He's holy. He's faithful. And confession recognizes who we are, that I'm not, and I'm sinful. But I also want you to see, as Daniel continues praying, that confession is only half of the equation. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by our truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Let's stop right there. So in verses 9 and 10, Daniel is appealing to God for his mercy. God, you have have mercy and you have forgiveness, even in our rebellion and in our sinfulness. And in verses 11 through 14, what he's doing here, he is quoting God's promises. So he's continuing to pray in God's promises from the law of Moses. All this stuff in these four verses comes from Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30, that God would promised to shower his people with blessing if they would trust and obey him, but also to discipline them if they continue to turn aside to sin and idolatry, culminating in the ruin of Jerusalem and their exile from the promised land. And the key that I want you to see is in verse 13. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord. Literally what that word means is that we have not called on We've been too weak in our weakness to call on the unearned favor of God. What do we call that? Grace. When we're too weak and we admit our weakness and we can't save ourselves, we can't help ourselves, we need the unearned favor of God. We're calling on him, we're entreating that from him. We've not done that. Number two, we have not turned from our iniquities, Daniel says. We have not been changed by the truth. And so they're not experiencing forgiveness without these three things. God's favor, turning from sin and our change. And so the third prayer principle is that we need to come to God, like Daniel, in repentance. And what that looks like is those three pieces, by calling on God's grace, his favor, then we can turn from our sinfulness back to him and his forgiveness. You see, repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. My little guy, when he gets in trouble, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then he goes and does it again five minutes later. That's not repentance. The word repentance in the Bible literally means turning the opposite direction, responding to God's grace with change, putting sin to death through the power and life of Christ. And so let me tell you what it's not. Repentance is not nominal confession. Just saying, I did that, and I'm going to keep doing it. So nominal confession is not repentance. It's not just saying, well, I lied, or yes, I'm cruel, but what are you going to do with that? you you see, repentance is change not just stating your need to change secondly repentance is not worldly sorrow kind of like i just described to you with little chili paul tells us the apostle paul tells us in second corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 that worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance or salvation so what that looks like is when i feel bad but there's no change the Holy Spirit doesn't come in. There's no new heart, no new life, no new desire. There's no new Lord. It's me crying and saying, I feel bad, but I make it about how I feel instead of making it about my sin. That's not repentance. That's worldly sorrow. I feel bad, but there's no change. Thirdly, repentance is not religious ritual. What I mean by that is sometimes People can get caught up in repenting so that God will love me and so that God will bless me. It's a transactional thing that if I give you my repentance, then you give me this. Some, some of us, we feel we're so guilt-oriented. Maybe we grew up in a very harsh home, and so we constantly want God to like us. Does God like me? When God already promises that he loves you, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he demonstrates his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. Not when you, you were at your best, when you were at your worst, he loved you and sent his son his best, his best offering as a sacrifice. Sometimes we want God to like us, and so we repent, but sometimes it's just we want things like our health, or our wealth, or success, or marriage, or kids. And so we, when we make a mistake, we tell God, I'm sorry. And does that even the scales with us? Then God will accept me. Then God will give me what I want. Bless you. And so we try to manipulate God to be good to us when God is already good. And you cannot manipulate him. Verse 13 tells us, as we call on the favor and the grace of God, it empowers us to turn from sin, to put that sin to death, to make reconciliation and restitution where needed, not as penance or payback, to earn forgiveness from God, but in response to the grace of God, that you and I can make changes and make amends in true repentance. You see, sin is so powerful and so serious that God had to become a man in Jesus and face every temptation that we face and yet live the sinless life that we could not live to suffer the death that we should have died and to give us the gift that we cannot earn, a life everlasting and empowered to change because Jesus paid it all. God is that holy. I am that sinful. And it is that important that we deal with sin. Last part of the passage. Finally, Daniel gets to his requests before God. Right? Usually you and I start with our, our laundry list, but Daniel waits to the end. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. It's kind of like a a reproach or a shameful word amongst all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. I hope you started catching on that pattern. Verse 15, Daniel says, Now God, now I'm going to call upon you. Now I'm going to present my request finally to you. Because I remember in the past that you delivered your people out of sin, slavery, and death in Egypt all the many hundreds of years ago for those of you who remember the movie prince of egypt or actually read exodus (laughs) but the key as he's referencing how god has done all these things to deliver his people out of egypt and made a name for yourself did you hear that repeated over and over in this passage that means to bring honor to his own name that that god in delivering god's people out of israel egypt excuse me was bringing honor to your name while we, God's people, brought shame and sin to ours. And so listen to how he frames his request of of God. I'm going to just summarize it very easily for you. Verse 16, turn away your righteous anger from our sin because of your city, your holy hill, your people. In other words, things that represent you, God, have become a disgrace. Verse 17, listen to the pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Verse 18, for the city called by your name Verse 19, hear, forgive, pay attention, act, don't delay, for whose sake? For your sake, because of your city, your people, called by your name. You see, each day that Jerusalem is in ruins, each day that the Jewish people are in exile, tarnishes your reputation of oh God. So we see that Daniel's requests are all based on things for God's sake, for God's name, for God's glory. I think about when Jesus was asked by his disciples. His his followers said, teach us how to pray. And so in Matthew uh, chapter 6, he teaches them, Father in heaven, holy is your name, the name and reputation of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how you make requests to God. In prayer, not just asking for what I want, but what God wills as a reflection of his name, his character, his glory. And so the fourth prayer principle this morning is called supplication or making petition, that as Daniel prays from Scripture, likewise we would make our request from God's will and his word for his glory. Now, why does God insist on that? Is God just this controlling narcissist who's is self-centered and, and wants everything to be about him? Here's the key. Look at verse 18. We didn't make these pleas because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. In other words, when I'm asking you for things, and I'm asking you for help, and I'm asking you for healing, it's not something I can do by our own ability or morality. What I deserve is judgment. What God deserves is obedience and honor. And so I don't make demands from a proud position, but humble submission to the will of God, relying on his righteousness, his mercy, not ours. And so when you ask God for help, I want you to think about this. When you bring your request before God, in your suffering or in your anxieties, whatever the case may be, particularly when you're bringing your sins before him, when you bring your request before God, does it serve the will and glory of God or does it serve the will and glory of me? Or the glory of someone or something else even. Now, we've been giving you these monthly challenges every every month, kind of. Uh, We want you to continue practicing the no phone while waiting challenge for another week. But starting in February, I want to give you a heads up. This is the daily challenge for February. That we would start practicing in your own time, seeking God's mercy daily through prayer. And And all that looks like is starting your day just like Daniel would. Starting your day with just five minutes, practicing these four things: adoration, it's just praise, confession, and meaning your sins, repentance, turning from your sin, supplication, bringing your, your requests that glorify God to reflect, so that you would reflect Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 to 23, which reads: The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, when we pray like Daniel, it reminds us no matter how terrible my sin, no matter how often I've sinned, that there's new mercy, there's sufficient mercy every morning for me in Christ. In fact, this is something that even children can practice and pray. That's how. Most and I teach our kids, we teach them these three simple principles, like to praise, to thank God, not just for what he gives, but who he is and what he does. We ask him, you see, we teach our kids, to say, thank you, God. And then we teach them to say, forgive me, God, over specific sins, and asking Jesus to help them change. And we teach them to pray, help me, God, not just to get more of their toys and joys that I want, but the things of your will, to pray for character and kindness, to have forgiving hearts for the good of others and for the glory of God. Even children can do this. And so I want to challenge you to practice doing it in the morning so that you experience Lamentations 3, that God's mercies for you are new and sufficient every morning. When I think about being crushed by the consequences of your life, when you feel trapped, you've already done it to yourself, I think of this woman named Shannon Etheridge. She was this very sharp 16-year-old girl with a bright future ahead of her. She climbed into her little brown car, strapped on her seatbelt, driving to school, 16 years old. At the same time, Marjorie Jarstfer, Wycliffe Bible translator and missionary, was riding her bike along the same road. And in a moment of distraction, Shannon took her eyes off the road, struck Marjorie. Marjorie died on the spot. Shannon was found completely at fault by the authorities. There is no way to fix this. There is no one else to blame. Her life, as she knows it, is over. And all that lays ahead is ruin. And she had done it to herself. And so consumed by the crushing guilt of this terrible thing that she had done, this young 16-year-old girl contemplated suicide several times. but she never took her life because she encountered the overwhelming grace of God from a place that she expected it the least, from Marjorie's husband, Gary. When Gary saw her in court, he told her, I forgive this 16-year-old girl. He refused to pursue punishment. He insisted that the DA drop all of the charges against her, without a trial, saving her from a very likely guilty verdict, because that would have been the correct consequences for what she had done. Instead, he got a hold of her and said to her directly, you can't let this ruin your life, young lady. God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I am passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. This is what Shannon Etheridge looks like now. Even though she says, this is her own words, even though I grew up in church, I don't think I ever really knew Jesus personally. I didn't understand the depth of his mercy, his compassion, his love, until I met Gary. His response towards me, the one who caused him the greatest indescribable pain and loss in his life, was a vivid picture of how Jesus endures all the pain of the cross. And yet his first concern was always for us, the ones who nailed him there. And so this woman, she spent the next 20 years pursuing Jesus like Marjorie did, being transformed by the forgiveness of Jesus like Gary gave. And today, many of you know her. She is the best-selling Christian author of books like Every Woman's Battle, and recently, Completely His, Loving Jesus without limits, helping women overcome their guilt-ridden, wounded lives. There's mercy from God that can transform us. And it's important because all of us, you and I, we all sin, and you and I will have experienced or we are experiencing, or we will experience the suffering and shame that comes from sin that we cannot repay. There is no way to fix it. It's no one else's fault. I did it to myself. But like Daniel, there's incredible hope. Like Shannon, there's incredible restoration. If we are humble enough and courageous enough to come to God praying for mercy... And the good news is, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, His victory, that you and I can approach God and receive forgiveness and favor. And just like in this passage in verse 18, not because of our righteousness, but because of His great mercy. And so I want to invite you to take an opportunity, as we sing this next song, to just quietly come before the throne of grace. And I want you to think about what area of your life do you need to come and throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus? And we don't just want to talk about it. Let's do it. Let's come to Jesus humbly in prayer and experience His great mercy for ourselves. Heavenly Father, as we hear the pain in this passage for God's people, We are filled with both conviction, mourning, but also hopefulness. And so we ask this morning that whatever you need us to do, whatever area of prayer we need to bring more before you, if we need to adore you more, if we need to confess to you more, if we need to repent more, if we need to bring our our needs to you, but seeing them through the eyes of your promises and your word. Give us the courage and the humility to come and throw ourselves at the feet of jesus to experience his mercy as we quietly sit during this next song may our conversation be with you the god who welcomes us the god who opened the door through the blood of jesus